So, look, I'm sorry we did this to you. I'm sorry that we've started Christmas in November. I'm personally affronted by this. If anyone knows me, uh, you know that I'm very much a strict December 1st is Christmas season. November 30th is not, okay? So, um, the fact that we're doing a Christmas series on the 22nd makes my heart hurt. Uh, but that's all right. There's really only... Um, there's only four or five weeks left. In five weeks, we've got four weeks of this series, and then we've got our Christmas family whānau service, and that's it. And it's Christmas, and then 2020 is over. Yay! Oh, gosh. That has been a long time coming. I mean, it's been a year. So, with Christmas coming, it seems like we start in our yearly debate and our yearly sort of hand-wringing about how Christmas is no longer Christiany and how secular culture has stolen all of our Christian traditions and um, turned them into whatever they want them to be. And we get very upset about this sometimes. We, we get angry that like Christmas is a Christian holiday and our secular culture is stealing it from us. But before we get too irate with our secular culture, uh, it's probably worth remembering that long before our secular culture was stealing Christmas from us, we were stealing elements of Christmas from them. Uh, so let's just have a look at this little video and see what Christmas, how it all got started. Ever wondered where your favorite Christmas traditions come from? Decking the halls comes from pagans in Northern Europe, where winter plants like evergreens, holly, and ivy were brought inside to cheer up the dark winter days. And while the modern Christmas tree didn't appear until later, it probably has roots in Latvian pagan traditions. Then there's Santa. Turns out, he's not the only winter spirit. In Italy, the witch La Befana flew to houses and delivered candy or coal, while Northern Europeans left food out for Odin, which he replaced with gifts. Those traditions later became associated with St. Nicholas, a patron saint of children who we now know as Santa Claus. Oh, and the eight flying reindeer? Those probably had their roots in Odin's flying eight-legged horse. Festive! And why do we celebrate on December 25th? Back in the day, there was a lot of debate over Jesus' birthday. Meanwhile, other sun deities were celebrated on the winter solstice. Sol Invictus in Rome, Baldur in Nordic countries, and Mithras in Persia, for example. So it made sense to celebrate another radiant deity at the same time, because in the middle of winter, everyone is looking for light. So, um, how's that for bubble bursting? Yeah? Enjoy that? Hey, Christmas is a sham, it's a lie! Is it though? I mean, of course not, right? It just means that when the early church wanted to share the beautiful, amazing story of the birth of Christ with the world around them, what did they do? They looked at the world around them. They looked at the culturally important icons, symbols, days, festivities, and they used them to highlight and to point to the story of Jesus. Yeah, take 25th of December, for example. 25th of December, at least back then, was winter solstice. Now, this was the moment, it was the shortest day of the year, although it's now December 21st, I, I don't know, things change. But it was, um, it was the shortest day of the year, it symbolized the sort of, this is as bad as winter is going to get, 
And finally, the darkness of winter is turning into slowly giving way to the warmth of summer, right? So it was this dawning of new hope, new light. And so the early Christians thought, oh, this is perfect. I mean, this is absolutely perfect. This is the story of Jesus who brings light in our darkness, who turns the tide of evil away and we have this dawning hope of new creation, right? So yeah, it made sense. We said, let's pick this day. We don't know when exactly he was born. It doesn't really matter anyway. It's like Queen's birthday weekend. You know, you just pick a day and it's about the event that it commemorates. And so that's what they did. And all of these other traditions, they looked around and they saw things that people were doing anyway. And we said, look, we can use this to highlight what's going on with, with the story of Jesus, yeah? And we're okay with that. So we probably shouldn't get too upset that a secular culture is going to try and do the same things with the Christian message and the Christian traditions. It doesn't take away what actually happened. There is nothing that anyone can do to take away the story, the reality, the event of God coming down as a person, Emmanuel, God with us, and changing our lives and our history. That story has not gone anywhere. In fact, what this does, though, is allows us to kind of play the game again a little bit. And so this series, not as, we're not going to steal sort of secular traditions, but the idea is we want to look at some of the secular traditions around Christmas, some of the icons, some of the movies and the stories that are being told that aren't necessarily or inherently Christian, but we can look inside them and see how they also help us point to the story of Jesus. Secular messages, Christian story. Secular stories, Christian message. So... The first one that we're going to do this week is the big jolly man himself, Santa, legend, all right? This is a guy we all love. I was actually going to have Santa come and speak to you himself, but unfortunately, he's helping my son with the pro-presenter at the moment, so. I <laughs> love you, Dad. Seriously, though, the beard, it's amazing. Okay, so Santa has, uh, well, he's, he's really been identified, he's kind of polarizing, isn't he? I mean, kids love him, but he's kind of been identified by the church in a lot of ways as like the antithesis of Christian Christmas. I mean, he's like the Antichrist. In fact, some people note with interest that Santa's name rearranged is Satan. Mm-hmm. All right, Satan Claus. My sister loves that one. So people don't really, there's kind of this about Santa, but his story actually has a lot of Christian roots in it, and his current story even has something to say to us about the Christian message. So in the fourth century, okay, there's a man named Nicholas, Nick, Nicky. Wasn't named Saint back then, of course, he, that came later, but he lives and he serves in an area with modern-day Turkey. All right, this is around 300 AD, okay, so for early 4th century, late 3rd century, very early on in the church history. In fact, this would have been before the, the Bible as we know it was, was fully collated and put together. Um, so he's, he's working, he's doing his thing, he's a devoted Christian. He defends um, the Christian faith and he defends Jesus in a time where the Roman Empire which was still in, in control of the area, um, was defiantly against Christianity, and there was a bit of a, um, a persecution that broke out. 
And Nicholas spent some time in prison um, for being a Christian. But he's not famous for that. What he's famous was for being a very compassionate man. He saw the, the sort of the poverty around him. He saw people struggling through life and he wanted to do something about it. So he gave money and gifts to people who need it. And he wanted to do it anonymously, so he would do it in such a way that they wouldn't know it was him and leave sort of packages by the door. Once people kind of caught wind of this, some actually put their shoes outside the door, or stockings, if you will, and he would put gifts in there. There's one story about him providing money for a guy who had three daughters, and he couldn't afford the dowries for their marriages, and so they were likely going to end up in prostitution. And so he's like, I want to, to help this, so he paid the dowries. And legend has it, he, he either threw it in the window, or one account says that he dropped it down the chimney in order to remain anonymous. So he kind of got a bit of a reputation for his generosity, and eventually became known officially as St. Nicholas, or in Dutch, Sinterklaas. That's what St. Nicholas is in Dutch. Ah, yeah, you got a little aha there, right? And then the legend continued for there, but it goes around a few interesting corners. See, for centuries, St. Nicholas kind of became, he's the patron saint of children, and he kind of became symbolic of giving gifts. And people would celebrate um, St. Nicholas Day by giving gifts. I think that was early on in December at the time. But then during, uh, after the Reformation, um, the, the saint characters kind of, they got less popular. And so the idea of a, of a gift giver was moved to baby Jesus. But you see, now one of the things that St. Nicholas had done, one of the traditions that came up was not only would he give gifts, but he would kind of reprimand naughty children and to keep them in line. And he would kind of have them staying on the straight and narrow, as it were. And uh, so after the 1500s, when baby Jesus was kind of took on this role as gift giver, um, they kind of thought, well, first of all, baby's not going to be able to carry many gifts around, and he's not a very intimidating figure, so for the naughty kids, what are we going to do? So they came up with, generally over time, this, this secondary figure grew. The sort of dark side of Christmas grew, and his name was Krampus, or Ruklaus, and he was actually fashioned after St. Nicholas, but the nasty side. And so his idea was um, Jesus would come and give gifts, and that would be great for the good kids. And then Krampus would come, and he would whip or kidnap children, uh, or threaten to whip or kidnap children if uh, they weren't behaving. That, I mean, that's, we're thinking, right? There's some, there's some ideas here. Like, we've got an idea. This is Elf on the Shelf, but like, more so. So um, this sort of really nasty character came into play. Then in America, um, all of these cultures sort of came into the States. And there were some, like the Puritans, they didn't like Christmas at all because of all of the pagan um, rituals and stuff like that. But then others from um, Holland and Germany and other places, they loved Santa. Well, they loved St. Nicholas and all this. So they started meshing and marrying together all of these characters. And so you started to get this saint character that had some of the sort of very big qualities of Krampus, but some of the nice giving gifts of, um, of St. Nicholas from before. Then in 1822, Clement Clark Moore wrote a poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas. 
Do we know what we know that poem to be called now? Does anyone know the name of it now? It was the night before Christmas. And this, which was actually just written for his kids and was never really intended to be published, but someone published it for him anyway, became a huge thing. And now we finally have this modern iteration of Santa Claus climbing down the tree with his reindeer. By the way, the reindeer from Odin thing, yeah, that's, that's freaky and weird. But. So he's got all of this um, you know, flying reindeer and this magic of Christmas, and he delivers gifts. So that's where the story of Santa comes from. Hope no bubbles were burst today. If you still believe in Santa at this point, then we have questions for you. But since that time, the media has absolutely fallen in love with Santa Claus. Um, in fact, I had a look on the internet, which is the source of all accurate information. And um, since TV and movies have been made, some of the most popular characters to turn up have been people like Dracula. Dracula has been in 200 movies and TV shows. Sherlock Holmes, over 250. And then God, it's nice that he shows up on the list, he gets 350 appearances. Now, I'm not sure if this includes Jesus or not, but either way. So that's, that's the number I got. Santa has been in over 800 movies and TV shows. Just incredible. We are absolutely obsessed with this red-clad fellow. And it begs this question. What is the big deal with Santa? Why do we love him so much? Why are we so obsessed as a culture with Santa Claus? I'm guessing it's not the sweatshop that he runs at the North Pole. You know, I'm guessing it's not his questionable fashion choices. I know we're not in love with the breaking and entering that he does or the very questionable ethics of the naughty and nice list. I mean, where's privacy in that one, right? So there's a lot of stuff going on there that we're not necessarily in love with. So what is it? What is the magic of Santa? I think, in my opinion, the magic of Santa is the one thing that has survived from the original story of St. Nicholas. This idea that someone out there would give a gift for no other reason than to just be nice. And to give it without any ulterior motives. He just wants to give. Now, Santa's story has kind of got convoluted with the letters and all of this sort of stuff, but at its heart, at the magic of this, is Santa just wants to bring joy, to bring something nice. Unless, of course, you're a bad kid and then you get a lump of coal. But... You know, we kind of go off, off track there with it. But there is just something powerful and rare about a generosity that is anonymous and that does not come with strings attached. We're used to, um, in our culture, we see people giving, we see charitable contributions, we see companies getting involved in really important work in the community, but it always comes with something, right? It comes with a big advertisement plastered on the side there. So we all know who gave it so that it helps their business run. I mean, this is just good PR, right? It just makes sense to do it that way. But we're just used to this idea that giving comes for accolades with me, right? I want to give, I want you to know that I'm giving so that you can thank me. But the magic behind Santa is that he doesn't stick around for a thank you note. The magic of St. Nicholas is that he gave anonymously. He didn't even want to be known for giving. 
It's a, it's a beautiful and powerful thing. I think Nick um, was following the instructions that Jesus had given him. He wasn't trying to give for his own benefit, but he gave because A, he saw a need, and B, he wanted to serve God by giving. He was following the words of Jesus and Matthew. Matthew, uh, Jesus says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, notice the expectation there, when, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all of the reward that they are ever going to get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. What an interesting picture. This is what Nicholas took on. He took on this attitude of giving for God's reward and not anyone else's. Just a little background. Um, I mentioned that the wind in that, the expectation there. This, one of the pillars of the Old Testament faith was looking after the poor. There was no social welfare in that time. There was no sort of government assistance. So it was expected that God's community would look after their own if they were in need. Right? And so that was something that had flowed right through the Old Testament story. And by the time you get to Jesus, it's very much entrenched in the everyday life. But something had happened to it. It had become something where people could show off how amazing they were or how good their faith was, especially the religious leaders, and Jesus loved to go after them. Because what they would do is they would make a big deal out of their giving. You remember a, a few weeks ago I told a story about the woman who gave a couple of coins and, and all of these rich people who were giving their um, uh, coins into the treasury. Some of you weren't here for that, but it, I told a ridiculous version of the story. But there's an element of truth to the fact that people would really draw attention. I don't know if there was literal um, blasting of trumpets in the street. There may have been, or this may have been a turn of phrase that Jesus was saying, but they just, they want everyone to see them. I think maybe they started out doing that because they wanted to inspire others to give as well. I mean, we're the religious leaders, right? We should lead by example. People need to see us giving so that they will know that they should give as well. Maybe it started out that way, or maybe it didn't, but Jesus cuts right through the actions and gets to the heart, and he knows. He says, your heart is twisted here. You're only interested in what other people see, or you are interested in what other people see, and you think that's what I'm impressed with. He says, I'm not impressed with that. God's like, I don't, I, I'm not impressed with your giving if you're giving to get accolades from other people. Do it for me. Well, don't do it at all. And we see this, like I said, in today's world. We have this need to be accepted and to be congratulated by the people around us. And Jesus is very clear, you know what, you probably succeed. If you want to get accolades for giving to the poor, you'll get them. People will be very impressed. You know, they'll build statues for you and you get little plaques on trees and stuff. And everyone's going to think, you are such an amazing dude. 
But that's it. That's all of the reward you're going to get. And when everyone's gone, and everyone's died, and the world has moved on and forgotten you, I got no reward for you. Not for that giving. Give to me, give in my name, give anonymously, and I got a reward for you that's going to last forever. So giving anonymously is what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to not let the left, left hand know what the right hand is doing. Now, obviously, that's another turn of phrase, unless Jesus wants us to all get lobotomies. We, we, we're going to know what's going on. And look, there's, there's some wisdom to be brought into that as well. It doesn't mean that we can't you know, um, keep track of our giving for tax purposes and that sort of thing, uh, unless that is affecting the heart of your giving. Right? Because that's the key, right? Whatever you are doing, what is happening in your heart? So I would say, if even keeping track of it for tax purposes is causing your heart to go a little bit like, hey, I get to show my little tax certificate, then don't do that. Whatever it takes for your heart to be given to God and God only, do that. That's what this is about. So the next question is this. Why is it such a big deal that we don't get recognition from others? I mean, why is it such a big... Can't we get both? Like, can't I have my cake and eat it too? Can't I, you know, give because I want to serve God, but also get a pat on the back as well? I mean, I want to build my encouragement, right? My self-esteem. I want to kind of have a sense of self, right? That's, that's a thing that we do. So why can't I have both? Well, there's an interesting little picture uh, of what's going on here a little later on in the Bible. Um, it's in the book of 2 Corinthians. And the writer of this book, Paul, he's organizing a gift with some of the churches that he's been in contact with, including the church of Corinth. He's gathering this offering that they've, they've given um, so that he can take it to Jerusalem and give it to the church in Jerusalem. They're on rough times, people are in poverty, and so he's kind of gathering some resources from around the Mediterranean basin and, and to take it to them. And so he's kind of um, going through some details with this church, and then listen to how he describes the outcome of this gift. First, he talks about how God is providing, and then he talks about the outcome. Let's, let's have a look. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And now here's the kicker. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank you. They will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met. And they will joyfully express their thanks to God. That's the picture. That's the win. This is what we want here. See, there's a human nature element to this. When I get a gift from you, let's say Nate gives me a gift, I'm like, man, that's awesome. Nate, thank you. If that ever happened, that's what I would say. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's very generous. So um, I would thank Nate because he gave me the gift. Well, let's say Nate gave a gift but I didn't know where it came from. It just anonymously turned up in my letterbox. Who am I going to thank? 
I'm going to thank God. God provided this. Did God not provide it when they gave it to me? Of course he did. Everything Nate has, God provided. And he just passed it on. But my thanks are going to him instead of to God. That's human nature. So when we know where the gift is coming from, we tend to direct our praise and our thanks that way. We can sometimes also do it to God as well when we're thinking about it. But when we give anonymously, it gives more opportunities for people to see who is actually giving the gift, who is actually providing the gift. And that's God. He's the one who provides the seed for the farmer. He's the one who provides the bread for him to eat, right? He's the one who gives us the resources to allow us to be generous. He's the one who deserves the glory for the gift that is given. That's part of the reason why we have this anonymity involved in giving. Don't let people know or don't make a big deal out of the giving so that God is the one who gets the glory because he's the one who deserves it, right? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I want to give you a really good example of this. Um, this happened last week when we had um, Jen Cherry in for the Back to School Project. Some of you were, were here for this. We've got a, like a nice different group of people this week. But last week we had um, this Back to School Project. Do you want to um, pop up the screen from the, the notices just so people can see the thing there? Um, so they came up and they talked about this amazing um, project to help um, students who don't have enough to buy stationery and who end up starting with an uneven keel with all of their other peers in, in school because they don't have the same stuff and are bringing all of their school stuff in a plastic bag and everyone's like, oh yeah, there's the poor kid. You know, and they start off on the back foot and it just repeats the cycle of poverty, right? We've seen this, we know this is happening. So Back to School Project is designed to take donations and provide all of these students with their own backpack full of all of the stationery specific to what they will need that year for their class. And uh, so Jen was talking about it. It was a really amazing sort of story. And then we had some backpacks at the back where you could take a uh, backpack and give, donate to Back to School Project the amount that was on the backpack. We've got a few left, and I think we're going to have those out in the back if you missed a chance and you want to do that again. Um, yeah, little, little pictures of backpacks. Sorry, did I not make that clear? Thank you, Nate. <laughs> Giving again. You're just so generous. <laughs> Um, so uh, we've got these little pictures of backpacks, and you can take one of those. But anyway, so we said that as a church, we would match um, any of those donations that you made. So the numbers came in. Next slide. We were able to donate $2,000 to Back to School Project to put together backpacks. That is 25 backpacks, 25 children who have a brand new slate to start with next year, that despite what's going on in their homes, despite what's going on in their communities, they have an opportunity to start with a fresh, clean slate, even keel, right there in their education. They can look around their room at school and say, I am a peer. There is no reason why I can't do anything that anyone else in this classroom can do. There's no reason why I can't succeed, why I can't learn, why I can't make my path different than the one that was originally given to me. What an amazing story. Do you know the best part about this? 
none of them are going to know who gave. They don't know you. We don't even know how much you gave. We know how many backpacks were gone, and so that's how we got the number. We don't know who took what. They went straight to back to school project. They know how much you gave, but they don't know you from a bar of soap. So no one knows there is no praise pointing back up and ending up on your plate. The kids only know that Christians donated or churches and stuff donated towards back to school project. They know that it came through there, but they don't know who you are. So who's going to get the glory for this? Now, back to school project is going to get some because they're handing out the backpacks. But that point in that direction straight back up. God gets the glory for what you guys gave last week. Isn't that incredible? That's the picture. You gave your left hand. You guys did not know what the right hand back to school project was doing. You just don't, there's, there's a disconnect. And because of that, God gets the glory and you get the reward. That's the picture. That's what we're looking for. That's what generosity in the Bible is all about. We've been talking about generosity for, seems like ages now, <laughs> but we've been talking about this, and this is the last sort of key that I want to bring in. When we give for God's glory only, our reward gets better. And God gets that glory, and people thank Him, and people are praising God because of us. That is the, really the only thing that we can say, yes, I did that. That's my thing that I was able to do was something that I did make God get glorified by someone else. That's my win. An incredible picture. So I, I'm just so proud of Church Northwest. I just, I love this community. I love that you guys have gotten on board with this two years in a row, just incredibly generously, without any need for you to be recognized. That's beautiful because God who knows what is done in secret will reward you. Let me pray. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for the gifts that came through for um, Back to School Project. We, we pray that those funds will be used to change families' lives. And ultimately, we, we pray, Lord, that those gifts would cause people to thank you and to praise you and to give you glory because you deserve all of the glory. You deserve all of the thanks. We only gave because you have given us so much. We were only to pass on the things that you have already given to us. So we just thank you for that and we thank you. It, we, we don't even deserve a reward at all forgiving because like I said this is just your stuff to begin with but you want to reward us for trusting in you and for pointing towards you so Lord help us as we think about giving as we think about our charitable actions from here on out help us to think about how we can do it in such a way that we don't get the glory but that you get the glory it's in your name we pray amen